From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. If art is supposed to start conversations, then seeing Noonan is working. The project mounted 19 large-scale photographs of residents on buildings around Noonan in Coweta County. It's home to about 33,000 people who don't all look or think alike, which kicked up a fuss over who belongs there and a swift counter-response. I feel like it shows just how much Noonan has changed over the years. If more people would open their minds, as other cultures do, and go by what's actually out there in front of them and ask questions, like we wouldn't have as much conflict in the world. Those are voices from Seeing Noon in a video about the installation by photographer Mary Beth Meehan, who joins me now from Providence, Rhode Island. Hello. Hi, Virginia. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Give us a little background, though. You were invited in 2015 by Art Res to take photos of the people around town. You've done projects like that in your hometown, Brockton, Massachusetts, and in Providence. Why do you think they invited you to this southern town? Well, you know, I've been really inspired by the work of a scholar named Sarah Lewis, who talks a lot about... <clears throat> the power of the aesthetic encounter. Like if you make work, particularly photography, that's really powerful, a viewer could stand in front of that work and be moved. You know, their heart could crack open in a way that allows for an idea of a world that might be different than their own, you know? And so I've been playing with large-scale banners in urban environments to sort of jolt people out of their you know, their everyday routine. And the people from Noonan, someone, a person from the art residency and a person from the University of West Georgia saw the work and went back. And I received an email saying, you know, we think people are living in their own little bubbles in our town and they don't really know how to reach out of those bubbles and connect. And we think your work might have the power to help help that happen. And so we started a series of conversations that ended in me going to Noonan for the first time in 2016 and working there for the next three years. So, jolt you did. <laughs> you ended up with 19 portraits of a variety of people, soldier, veteran, farmer, descendants of old Noonan families, and just regular folks. Uh, how did you choose who to photograph? Well, in every project, I do a lot of research to figure out the history of a place and how the history comes to bear on the present for people who are in the community and their experiences. But mostly, I just spend hundreds of hours talking and listening to people. And, you know, unlike the people in Noonan who may be living in their little bubbles, not able to reach out beyond them, I am just a free floater. And I, you know, I spent hours in homes and churches and community centers and stores talking to people about this question of visibility and of togetherness. And so, one person would lead to another and you need to talk to the the class of 54 who graduated from the all-black high school and raised their kids during segregation. You need to go to one of the Spanish churches. You need to go to this new taqueria. And so, I mean, and then there's the joy of, you know, Pastor Rufus Smith shows up in this gorgeous plum-colored velvet jacket and I'm able to chase him down and say, oh my God, you're so beautiful. Could I make a portrait of you? So it's a balancing act between research and the spark and the people who are open to me who I feel a connection to. Then the first two were mounted in the spring. How big are they exactly? Well, the biggest one is a picture of Cliff and Monique who preside over the Farmer Street Cemetery, possibly the largest cemetery of enslaved Africans in the South. That banner is 38 feet wide. Mm -hmm. um, most of them are about 14 to 20 feet. 
The others are in the town square. And there's the one showing two young Muslim women yeah. that really set things off. One person complained to the University of West Georgia where it was mounted. What was his complaint exactly? His complaint was that this picture did not represent Noonan. And um, I'm being generous by sparing you the profanity and the ugliness of the conversation that ensued from his complaint, but that, you know, that the United States was a Christian country and that why don't we remember 9-11 and why doesn't this liberal New Englander who's doing all these pictures go back home? What was amazing was after an initial piling on of that kind of voice, the people of Noonan really reached out and really defended those young women and started to talk about the Constitution, started to talk about freedom of religion, started to talk about the kind of community that they want to be. And I think the reason why I'm so proud of this project and why people in Noonan are proud is that these conversations were happening. They weren't about who voted for whom or what political party people belong to. It was about a bigger conversation about how we move forward as a community with disparate voices but with respect and inclusion and and people really i mean the the voices in defense of those young women and of them practicing islam soundly overwhelmed the negative voices yeah it really is something i, I looked at the post he, first he posted the number to call to complain on facebook about 1100 replies with right. pretty quickly it looks like from the, from the dates and times on them um, yeah, it's a firestorm. It, it was a firestorm, and it yeah. got super ugly super fast. I mean, there are a lot of anti-Muslim memes, uh, accusations yeah. of rednecks, words I can't say on the radio. Right. I'm, I'm going to just um, share a couple of them. Thanks for the number. I called to support the artist, her portraits, and thank her and make a donation. Uh, another one. I live, work, and play, and most importantly, drink and vote in Noonan. I'm proud <laughs> of the representation and diversity in these photographs. Another. Looks like I found the clan members of Noonan. Um, others. The Quran says to kill non-believers. Remember 9/11. Uh, response. Christians wear white sheets and murdered many innocent blacks. Some right here in Noonan. Know your history. Every slave owner was a Christian. Should we still fear y'all? Jesus hated people like y'all. He was about love. It really. What did it feel like for you? I mean, witnessing uh, uh, first the response, and, and, and did you wonder at one point, like, are people going to stick up for this? Well, it all happened so fast, and I think that, you know, I, I, I want to point out that nobody can go to a town like Noonan and launch a project of this size without incredible community buy-in. So there were so many people, you know, from the city of Noonan to the city council to private people who, who supported this work, the building owners who allowed us to put a banner of 20 feet on their on their building. So there was already an enormous um, core of support. So when this firestorm happened, I mean, what we all did was sit on our fingers and not reply mm -hmm. on, and watch it play out. And quickly, when those voices started rolling in in support, we thought, oh, my God, we've done something really important here. And the fact that this is all happening is why we did this project in the first place. I'm speaking with the writer and the award-winning photographer and artist, Mary Beth Meehan. Her large-scale portraits of a diverse mix of residents of Noonan, Georgia, is called Seeing Noonan. Uh, also, a number of posts that look like this. She need to go back where she come from, <laughs> which uh, tells you all you might need to know. People were threatening to pull it down. And, and I'm wondering for you, like, had you 
worked in the South? Had you spent time in the South before this project? I'd never spent any time in the South except for visiting a friend in Atlanta once many years ago. And, you know, when I received the invitation, it it has been a push-pull since the beginning. You're an outsider. You haven't been conditioned the way we've been conditioned here. We think you'll see this community possibly more authentically than we see it. At the same time that there was this push to say, are you going to make us all look racist? Are Mm. you coming down here with your northern liberal beliefs to, to, you know, to shove us into the categories that you already preconceived? So that push-pull informed the project all the way up to today. How about the two young women? How did they respond to this criticism? Amazingly, you know, when the firestorm happened, I called them, worried about them, and they said, oh, we knew this was going to happen. We, you know, we spoke about this with our family, and we decided that we wanted to be public. We wanted to represent ourselves and be part of this project and this dialogue. So they knew better than I did what to expect, and they and they weathered it accordingly. And I think the net result for them, they've had old teachers and old friends reach out to them and support so I think the net result for them has been positive and, and has moved things forward in Noonan that little bit. Well, you said when this firestorm happened, but what what have been the conversations since then? Uh, you said people are talking, you know, reaching out to each other. What do you mean? How are they meeting and what are they talking about? It's been so amazing. You know, at the launch, the launch of the project, you know, uh, an official at the University of West Georgia said this is the most, he used the word integrated, this is the most integrated group, the largest and most integrated group we've ever had here. And people, for example, uh, two women who I know were listening together, who a black woman and a white woman who had never met before started, who, they're listening right now, um, started a monthly luncheon group to bring black and white women together to talk about their experiences and to understand how these are the experiences that we had growing up in Noonan that that are similar, but because of race and the racial structure that we were born into, these are the experiences that we've had that were different. And, and we want to talk about that now. We want to understand that now. So this group is meeting monthly. Um, there has been support for the cemetery that I mentioned earlier, thanks to the banner. Um, Right now in September, I'll be there. We're going to be doing some focus, private focus groups in homes because, you know, city officials, educators, pastors, private figures are wanting to launch a series of public forums for people to come together and talk about, you know, why why is Noonan's history? Why do we celebrate the old white founders of Noonan, but the black history of the town is less visible? How do we talk about what, you know, I've heard people call hush up history. You know, we don't want to talk about slavery. We don't want to talk about Jim Crow. But so many in the community say, unless we can have public conversations about that without rancor and blame, unless we can really understand the experiences that we've all had in this community, then we will be stuck in our bubbles. And this project will have been a feel good thing with no real concrete outcome. So I'm happy that, again, a person like me cannot show up in a town like Noonan and demand that they have public forums. The fact that this is all coming from the community, I'm there to, I'll be there to support that and help facilitate it through the end of next year when the banners come down. Actually, June of next year. June 1st next year. But when you're talking, it makes me think about the question of who belongs. That's such a big question in America today. I mean, look at the manifesto of the El Paso shooter, you know, wanting to stop an invasion. How, how, How does 
an art installation figure into that question? Well, going back to Sarah Lewis, this um, educator whom I mentioned at the beginning, she talks and writes eloquently about this idea of representational justice. Just because the public-facing history that's celebrated of a town like Noonan is of the old white people, it doesn't mean that all of these other human beings haven't been integral to that place's founding and development. So when you take 19 banners that are 20, 30 feet and include, you know, the wealthy son of the mill owner and the mill worker, the 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 daughter of a founder, you know, of an a granddaughter of an early founder, and a woman who's a who was a domestic, a recent Mexican immigrant, two young Muslim women who were born in the county, and and putting putting all of those faces on an equal playing field just visually, is sort of radical because. These places have not been defined in that kind of egalitarian way with every voice and every participant equally represented. Okay, (laughs) sorry, I've got to wrap up. Writer and award-winning photographer Mary Beth Meehan, thank you so much. It's really great to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. I hope to see you in Noonan soon. Well, she's a photographer behind Seeing Noonan, an installation of large format portraits now mounted on buildings there. And we've got a link to a video about the project, as well as to her blog with descriptions of all the participants in her process in Noonan. That's all at gpbnews.org. Well, you can always join the conversation. What do you think? On our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Does it sometimes take somebody from outside of your bubble to change the way you think about the inner bubble? We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up, actor and comedian Scott Adsit brings his sense of humor and improv skills to Dad's Garage in Atlanta. He stopped by on Second Thought First. That's coming up first. We're going to hear about toxic masculinity and the price that pays. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. When Jared Yates Sexton's grandma researched the family tree, she discovered a long line of scofflaws, debtors, drunkards, and -and out-and-out criminals. The working-class men he grew up with in Linton, Indiana, could never quite get ahead, especially as industrial jobs dried up. But in their homes, they had absolute power, often maintained by violence, intimidation, and a rigid masculinity that was toxic to their families, communities, and selves. These are the men Sexton writes about in The Man They Wanted Me to Be, a memoir of struggling to fit in that traditional version of maleness, as well as an examination of research on how those traits measurably harm the mental and emotional health of those men and the public. Jared Yates Sexton is Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Georgia State University. He's going to be at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. I spoke to him when the book first came out and began with his definition of white patriarchal masculinity, a term often used in the book. So the white patriarchy is a, a large umbrella term that, that covers a lot of, of, of ground. Basically, it's the idea that society is sort of organized um, for the preference of, of white men. Um, that can be through laws, that can be through customs or traditions. But basically, it means that men socially, politically, economically are often on top of a pyramid of women and uh, minority populations. And you saw that when you were growing up in rural working class India. 
Indiana town. Men helped you form that picture, like your father. What were they What were they showing you about what it meant to be a man? Well, so the men I grew up with, um, in a lot of ways, they, they you know, looking back, they were very sad individuals. They weren't able to live their dreams. They weren't able to reach a certain level that they were always striving after. But what they had was their labor, right? They got to basically put themselves into their jobs. They exhausted themselves. They broke their bodies. But at the end of the day, the the bargain that they made was they were happy with their labor, and when they came home, they were in charge. And everybody in the home basically uh, took care of their whims, and there were punishments if that didn't happen. And and that's how the the white patriarchy in that particular instance was enforced. Um, the the women were made to take care of the house and take care of the family, and the boys in the family were taught this system of behavior by emotional, physical, verbal abuse. And that is certainly something that you encountered in your life. Your father was, um, you know, a sad man in his own way, but he and your mom split up fairly early, and you had a series of stepfathers who were just rigid. Uh, but, you, but you see also in this, in looking at generations and generations of men with this reinforced masculinity, there's a real vulnerability in that for them, too. What did you find? Absolutely, there is. Um, th- there's a real sadness to it. Um, the the thing you think about men is that they are, they're hard and they're invincible and they're strong. And, and that's what they project. But deep down, and this is the thing that I had to come to terms with, is I always felt uncomfortable with that rigid masculinity. I always thought that I was alone in that. But when I talk to other men, particularly the ones who overcompensate and pretend to be macho or strong or invincible... It turns out when you, they're honest, they feel the same way. They, they, they are, it's impossible to live up to those expectations because the, it, that masculine ideal doesn't actually exist. Mm. Men are vulnerable. Men are real. They have emotions. And the fact that they are taught to suppress them, it hurts them. And, and that leads to a whole range of terrible behaviors that hurts themselves and everyone around them. Yeah, I'd love to talk about some of the data on that. But I want to get to that point that you said, you know, that they can't get there. It is unattainable on some level, which opens them up to shame because they're not measuring up. And there's this kind of cycle of shame and trying to overcompensate for the shame. How does that play out? Give us some examples. Of oh, that. It's, a, it's a terribly tragic thing. So men are basically taught from the time they are very, very small that the only acceptable means of emotional expression is either anger or violence. Right. So they are basically completely walled off from their emotions. They're taught that they're not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to express themselves. They're not supposed to communicate. And so what happens when they feel shame? And this can be economic shame. This can be at work. This can be in the family. This can be socially. Whenever they feel shame, those men who are walled off, they react violently. This is how abuse happens. This is how uh, verbal and physical abuse happens. This is how they end up hurting themselves through um, self-medication, through using drugs, through using substances, through putting themselves in really dangerous situations. They are trying to overcompensate for what is a natural, uh, uh, you know, emotion. Right. And for you, uh, there is a as you say, there is a, a this this way of life is long past its expiration date. That's how you put it. The male centric occupations dried up. Men no longer had that option. That's connection to their esteem and their sense of value with their work. But is it over? Is that expiration date over? I mean, if we look at the sort of contemporary politics and recent legislations about women and, and women reproductive 
rights, do you think it's over? Well, this crisis that we're currently in is actually this weird political uh, reckoning with what's happening. So we have industry that's gone away, right? We have a lot of these traditionally, quote unquote, masculine jobs that are no longer there. So for instance, my family are laborers, they're factory workers, they're miners, you know, they're, they're people who have always been taught to do industry. Those jobs are gone. And quite frankly, they never enjoyed them in the first place. They, they broke their bodies, right? But what happens is they are now being bolstered by political movements. And we're definitely seeing this with uh, the rise of Donald Trump, who tells him he's going to bring back their factories. They're going to bring back the coal mines. These are jobs that are not coming back, but it gives them political identity. And so what they're doing is they're actually calling back angrily for these old ideas from where masculinity came from that aren't there anymore and won't exist. So they're actually holding back progress that would help themselves and everyone else. And these are the men that you could fit in with at Trump rallies uh, during the 1916 campaign. Uh, you were covering them. You were wrote, writing about them, and your articles were getting picked up online. Eventually, a lot of people following you as somebody who could pass, I guess. That's right. I had to learn how to basically walk among people because I had always learned as a child and, and as a young man how to be like them. So actually, weirdly enough, what, what crystallized for me as I was going to these Donald Trump rallies, and I had spent a lot of time in these circles, is it was a lot of the men that I recognized from my childhood, and they had found a political umbrella to be under. And that identity, um, weirdly enough, is what has propelled uh, a lot of this movement. Right. Uh, but how is your read of this, you know, different from the forgotten men, those left behind, uh, the narrative we've heard, especially frequently since the 2016 election, that men are under attack. They have nothing of meaning for them anymore. How is your narrative of that different? Well, I think, again, that's a political story. I think they get told that this is something that they have to hold on to when, in fact, they don't want it anyway, right? Like when you go to work at a factory, you go to work at a mine, what you're doing is you're ransoming the future of your life. You're giving away your body. You're going to live a shorter life. And men, studies show time and time again, are actually miserable. They're now like their, uh, their expectations of lifespan are going down because they're miserable living out these identities. But they're told constantly that they can do it. And they have all these insecurities that are born out from the time they're young. So they fight the idea of progress. So they actually actually push against any sort of change. And and the truth is, they have everything to gain from this. They have happiness, they have better relationships, they have longer lives, they have, uh, you know, better careers that they can get from this. But there's something uh, born into them, something taught to them when they're young that, that makes them push against that. But how about for you? This is something that you had to buck up against, this incredible pressure to fit in, even though, uh, as your stepmother called you, soft when you were young. You were a sensitive kid. You wanted to talk about... Napoleon and and the kids at school would have none of it. So how do you get out? How do you, you went away to university first in your family to do that? How do people get out of that kind of entrapment? It's a really large problem, but the first step of all of it is communication. Uh, what I found, and going back to my father, I, I found that talking to my father, who was the type of person who would have supported this movement, I started talking to him about um, his experiences and what he had gone through. And what he ended up telling me, this person who had terrorized me and abused me because he thought I was soft, it turned out when he was a kid, 
he was soft too. Mm -hmm. And he had been abused by his own father and basically had been beaten into him that he had to be strong and he had to be like a real man. So he was always overcompensating. He was always playing a role. So the first step is looking at this, and this goes back to these um, traditions and customs. We have to look at them and realize that they're artificial. And the moment that we start actually considering what masculinity is instead of just accepting it blindly, we start to realize it's full of contradictions. And men know deep down that this isn't real. They know that they're playing a character. And so the moment that they can have some communication or uh, an expression, they start to realize what, what a fraud this thing is. Jared Yates Sexton teaches creative writing at Georgia Southern University. He's author of The Man They Wanted Me to Be and will be at the Decatur Book Festival on August 31st. Yeah, that's one of the things late in his life, as his health was in decline, your father says to me, you you start to spend more time with him. Uh, Initially, there's a lot of tension. You know, he's clinging to a lot of his old values. But at one point, he says to you, do you ever feel like you're wearing a disguise? That is just heartbreaking. He'd spent a lot of his life posing on some level, performing masculinity. And yeah, my father my father was the type of person who like on a Saturday he would watch a NASCAR race followed by a showing of Patton, right? <laughs> he drove around town in big pickup trucks and he he gathered guns. He would say these fascist racist things all the time and I didn't know who he was. But eventually he confided in me that he had not had um intellectual or emotional intimacy for 30 years. And he he had felt so alone in it and so afraid in it that he had always just performed these things. He'd always just been around other men being racist and fascist. Eventually, he traded in his truck for a Prius, and he became incredibly open and and liberal and caring and emotional. But that's the whole point of it is, I think that once men start to realize that this is not just a role they've been playing, but it's actually a prison that they have put themselves in, I think that the the alternative looks really good. Well, but he disguised his illness, too. And that is another thing in in the research that you quote in the book about how men do not take care of themselves, especially admitting that kind of healthy vulner or health bodily vulnerability would be too much. So my dad died um, at the really young age of 59 from rampant diabetes, which is, a, you know, a disease that you should be able to take care of, that should be able to be handled. But he didn't go to the doctor for three decades. And right here is where we find the contradiction of masculinity. Men are supposed to be strong and brave and unflinching. They're terrified of going to the doctor. Right, because the doctor can tell them something that makes them vulnerable. And so what they do is they don't go to the doctor and they have all of these chronic conditions, heart conditions, diabetes, uh, you know, uh, obesity, all these things that they can go get taken care of. But they're so afraid to walk in that door. They're afraid to get medical help. They're afraid to get mental health. And so what they do is they they condemn themselves to lead shorter, more miserable lives, which is a a terrible contradiction when you really look at it about the, the man who's supposed to be unflinched but he can't go to a doctor's office. Well, we mentioned before that you go through the kind of history of how these rules became adopted by men. And part of it is advertising. The mass media marketing age really helped reinforce like what women's roles are and what men's roles are. But now we are seeing much more in advertising the caring dad, you know, the one who's changing the diapers or taking care of the kids. Do you think that there is a gap between how that you know, that traditional idea is being projected on television, in mass media, and how people really feel it in their lives. 
I, I, I think the two are definitely linked. Um, going back to the mass media age, um, you, you have things like Freudian attempts, right, to make men and women feel like they're not uh, – they're they're not adhering to their roles, so they have to buy products, right? A man has to buy a truck. He has to buy a lawnmower. I just saw the other day the weirdest thing. They now have male foundation, but they call it war paint. <laughs> and, and and so what happens is that that men learn that they have to pay a monetary price in order to be a man. But we are seeing uh, a, a difference now. Like you said, we're seeing like the caring father, right? We're seeing uh, the the man who will take care of his kids or will help out around the kitchen. Those things uh, change things over time. But the problem is that a lot of the men who need to realize that, they see that as an attack, right? They, they turn on the TV and every time they turn the channel, they see an attack on themselves because they are so, so uh, grounded in this old idea and this, this traditional idea of masculinity that anything that says different is an attack on them. Well, I think many of us have people in our lives, you know, men who are bound by this traditional ideal. My own father, he's now deceased, but he couldn't talk about his war experience, you know, like so many men that you mentioned in the book. Very shut down about that. We see that in our communities, in our workplaces. So in situations where we see this, how do you confront it? How do you have that conversation with in a way that doesn't put someone's back up against the wall? Well, and, and so much of that performance is all about not having your back against the wall, right? In my family, the way that it's expressed is, you know, insecure men cleaning their guns at the table, right? Or talking about their exploits. And what happens when they leave the room is the people who are left in the room are like, I feel so bad for him. I, I, this is a really sad situation. I wish that he would he would feel better. And they know it's about insecurity. The problem is we have to take that conversation from something that we say when they leave the room to something that we say when they're in the room. And we have to start talking to people and not just accepting that this is the way it has to be, which is a terrible term that we've been saying for so long that just perpetuates this behavior. We have to tell men who are insecure and overcompensating that it's okay, that they are loved, even if they fall short of the masculine ideal. We still love them. We still value them. And there's value beyond that performance. Well, there's so much that you reveal personally about your road to get here, Jared, that I encourage readers to pick up uh, because it's a it's a dramatic and winding road and very profound. But do you ever find yourself, you know, defaulting to those old positions that you so long strove to inhabit this maleness? Oh, absolutely. I had a, a really hard time with it. I hated the idea of masculinity. I wanted to get away from it. But I found later on in life that when I would have some sort of setback or, or some sort of insecurity, I would find myself performing the idea again. And the problem is that once you're around that, you're around those old patriarchal ideas, it infects you and it's with you for the rest of your life. So I basically basically have to take stock every single day and try and understand why I'm doing the things I am and why I behave the way that I do. And you have to be aware of that in order to, to move past it. All right. Uh, we just got 30 seconds, but, you know, Gillette campaign uh, right before the Super Bowl, defending, creating this idea of reinforcing the idea of men as sensitive to the Me Too movement. A lot of clapback against that. What did you say? Well, I, I think on one hand it's good because, again, mass media has a way of affecting these things. But we also need to keep an open eye towards what corporations are doing because in so many ways we're seeing these progressive movements that are being monetized. So we have to realize that, yes, it's good that we're moving in that direction and we're having that conversation, but we also need to realize who we are and why. 
Jared Yates Sexton. He teaches creative writing at Georgia Southern University. He's contributing writer at Salon and author of The Man They Wanted Me to Be. He'll be talking about that at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. Stay with us. Actor and comedian Scott Adzit is performing at Dad's Garage tonight and tomorrow. But we speak with him first. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. He has been on everything from Friends to The Office to The Goldbergs to American Dad. But you may know him best as Pete Hornberger from the show 30 Rock. We all need a release. I know, because Kenneth has taken mine away from me and I'm worried about what I'm going to do to replace it. While you were talking, I put a thumbtack in my neck. (gasps) Makes me feel something. Or maybe as the voice of Baymax from Big Hero 6. Ow. On a scale of one. Ow. On a scale. Ah. On a scale. Ow. On a scale of one to ten. <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your pain? <clears throat> Zero. It is all right to cry. No, 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 crying no. Crying no. is a natural response to pain. I'm not crying. Comedian and actor Scott Adzit is on a two-night four-show run at Dad's Garage beginning tonight. But first joins me in the studio. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Georgia. It's very nice to be here. My family's here, so I get really? to visit them when I come down here, too. Yeah. My sister and her family live in Johns Creek. No kidding. Mm-hmm. So I actually was remembering, and this may or may not be right, from 30 Rock, Hornberger was deeply disappointed because he was supposed to participate in the 1980 Olympics. That's right. Yeah. Or was it 80 or 84? 80, I think. Okay. Yeah, because Carter is the one who boycotted so you've and forgiven, you, you and your character have forgiven Georgia? No, no, no. Hornberger, he is a liberal to be sure, but uh, he doesn't like Carter for that reason because he had archery glory in his future. Yeah, so that was and and also another a thwarted thing about Hornberger, I guess. Yeah, well, that's his life, isn't it? We'd be disappointed if he wasn't thwarted. Apparently, I, when I read that script about him boycott, or being boycotted, um, I realize that, oh, Hornberger's a good six or seven years older than the actor playing him. Because I was 14 when that happened, that boycott. And (laughs) they put me in this beautiful kind of um, um, John Oates wig and mustache. For that period. (laughs) You had a full on mustache. Yeah. You were a very mature 14 year old. Yeah, exactly. And things all went. We just went south from there. Yeah. <laughs> he had to become a producer on a very successful television program. Well, that part was good. But, yeah, so you didn't really peak at 14 as Hornberger. He, he could have. <laughs> I mean, he wishes he had. He well, wishes anything he doesn't have. <laughs> so how does one get into improvisation? I mean, of course, you, you, you're in Illinois. Second City is there, legendary improv shop. But, did you know, when does one think... I want to be an improviser. Well, there's a difference. You can say, I want to be an improviser, and and that's great. And you can also then say, I want to do it for a living, and that's entirely different, because that's not a living. Um, in Chicago, I grew up outside Chicago in Northbrook, Illinois, and my parents would take me down maybe two or three times before I went to college. They took me to Second City, and I saw great people on stage and thought it was just incredible and like a thing that people do, which I didn't think existed. And it was unique, and it thrilled me. And then my high school, Glenbrook North, had an improv troupe when I got there. 
And so I auditioned for that, and I got in. And and we would perform at assemblies and, and other functions of the school and make fun of the school. And we had leeway to be high school political and express opinions and points of view. And, and generally, they were hands off the administration. They let us criticize them. What were the kind of politics of that era I'm, I'm trying to place? Uh, you know, important things like lunch is not long enough. Or I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. It was, the real issues? <laughs> yeah. There, no, but there were other things um, having to do with uh, censorship and the politics uh, of the good students and the bad students in the view of the administration of like the potheads and the sportos and the sportos are the good guys. And that seemed off to us. Not that we were, I don't think any of us were really potheads or anything like that, but, but we were defending the, what we saw as the downtrodden. And it was just a great kind of place to learn that I could have a voice through comedy. That, that sounds so strange, but uh, I, it, there is an, an art form called comedy too, which I strive for. But you never did stand up. No, I tried it a couple times with a friend of mine called Dino Stamatopoulos, and we did a few nights in Chicago at the Funny Firm. He's done it more than I have, but I just didn't like kind of the... I like being on stage. I didn't like the backstage stuff. What do you mean? Well, the... The, 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 the water on ice? <laughs> <laughs> the pretzels? No, it was more the, the sweaty, hunched-over, trembling, angry people who were waiting to go on stage. Uh-huh. Um, and just a lot of vitriol. How is the uh, improv crowd different than that? Well, they're, uh, they try to be a family, and it succeeds pretty well because a successful group has to like each other. And uh, in my time at Second City and, and my other experience in Chicago around Second City and adjacent to, uh, everybody was pretty loving and, and supportive and uh, wanted the product to be great. And so I never ex- really experienced that n- any negativity in improv. Well, some huge names have come out of Second City, of course. Mm-hmm. John Belushi, Gilda Radner, Chris Farley. And you came up around the same time as Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey. How did you use improv as an actor? Uh, it's essentially reacting, honestly. Um, I think good improv is uh, finding a, a natural reaction to something and still making it funny. Uh, and and one person does it and the other person does it and they go back and forth with this reaction fest and that's all we're watching is human behavior in the pursuit of desires and uh, I think that that informs any kind of acting it's just you come to realize the basics of improv kind of apply to every aspect of life that really translate into life lessons like you know you have to be interested to be interesting and tr- say yes as often as possible, um, and things like that. Your, you, your job is to support your partner and not yourself. It's just about making your partner look good and feel good, and, and, and if they're doing the same to you, then you got something. And all of that applies to life really well, and, and so it also, of course, applies to acting in a much more direct way. So improv informs me as an actor uh, to respond in the moment and honestly and in a way that is not selfish, hopefully. Yeah. 
And and you played such a variety of characters. I'm thinking of Pete Hornberger, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of course, from Thirty Rock, and Baymax, the voice for Baymax. Yes, Big Hero Six is uh, this Disney cartoon which came out in 2014 and won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, and uh, and I play this big robot in it. Nothing wrong with that, but but it's so interesting because a robot is without emotion. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing with your voice? I mean, you're first of all, you're not physically acting, obviously, because right. you've got a robot. Well, I mean, I think generally with a voiceover, you do act as physically as the room will allow mm-hmm. and the mic will allow, um, because that's a big part of performance and emotion. But since Baymax's emotions are in question, we don't know if he's really got emotions or not. Um, I tended to stay very still when I was doing the, the role. And actually, I still do it because uh, we have a TV show now. Um, but he kind of rides the line. I have to like walk this tightrope of falling too far into robotic and falling too far into emotion. So he kind of skirts that and leans one way or the other now and then. And my theory of Baymax is that somewhere deep inside, he has the emotions that we want him to have and that we are kind of uh, assuming he has. Uh, but he doesn't have the facility to communicate them properly. Yes, yeah, so there's another th- sort of thwarted character, but in another way. <laughs> yeah. Is this your brand? <laughs> yeah. That's just what people see in me when they cast, I guess. <laughs> I'm speaking with Scott Adsit. He's an actor and a comedian, and he's going to be on stage at Dad's Garage Friday and Saturday night, but for now, in the studio. Um You've also made a number of guest appearances on a bunch of TV shows, The Office, Portlandia, Veep, Law & Order, SUV, mm-hmm. like so many actors. How is that different, dipping into these larger productions, you know, coming in, it, uh, compared to developing a character? Um, yeah, I guess it seems more like an assignment when, you are, uh, when you're just doing a one-shot on a show. Um, you want to make sure that you get it right and you don't disappoint uh, you want to come in with what you do, but also serve what they need in that moment, um, as opposed to when you're part of a series, when you are a big part of the development of the character and and uh, and the writing bends toward what you do well eventually, you know. And when you're kind of work for hire, when you're a mercenary actor like that, and you go in, you just got to get the job done. So it's a little different that way. Um, and you're also entering into a family that exists. You know, you are absolutely a guest. And uh, sometimes you're a very, very welcome guest, and they're very excited to have you, and they're very pleased. And sometimes they're, it, it, it's just like you're the exterminator coming to kill the beetle infestation. <laughs> um, Amelia tells me I just said Law & Order SUV, which is... SVU. Could be, yes. <laughs> instead of SVU. That would be a much less be... exciting one. <laughs> Well, okay, so you have played a couple of roles that have cheesy in the title. Really? Cheesy salesman and cheesy announcer. Mm, okay. So uh, do you audition for these, or do they think, like, we need a cheesy guy, let's call ads it? Cheesies are offer only. Uh, there was a, sh- a movie called A Case of You, where I played a cheesy, I think the host of a retirement party dance with Justin Long. I, that was exciting for me because one of the actors who was playing one of the retired people played Luis on Sesame Street. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Senior, you, you were. You were. I lit you were, up. <laughs> you were listening to me. You were being respectful. You, you, but you were looking down at your research, and I said, "Louise from Sesame Street." And there everything was a pause, <laughs> and then a click, and you looked up, and your jaw dropped, and that's the way I felt. I imagine that's how anyone who meets him feels. You know, I've I've met several Sesame Street people, and they sometimes come to see me perform and stuff, and that is like a jaw drop. It's amazing. Yeah. I actually was looking because I now see that a case of you, you were a cheesy announcer, and it was in Mr. Woodcock, you were a cheesy that's salesman. Right. That's right. I'm trying to multitask here. I guess that's something you can't do when you're doing improvisation. You must have to be completely singular of focus. Yeah, pretty much. You have to be locked into your partner, pretty much. And that's what uh, a successful scene for me is, is when when I am playing just to my partner and aware of the audience and what they need, but mostly just trying to make her look good, you know? That's okay. For me, I'm just going to admit that I guess a lesson that I learned a long time ago is that it's not about making yourself look smart. It, it is about making the person who's with you feel comfortable enough to speak. Well, that's you're doing a great job. I feel very comfortable, and you look kind of dumb right now. <laughs> Okay, well, you found me out. <laughs> this whole charade is, is over. But improvisation terrifies me because I, I feel as if I would be thinking only of myself. So it's very interesting for you to say that it's about the other person. That's how you find success. That's when everything kind of clicks for you as an improviser is when you realize it's not about being clever. It's not about you. And it, it's a very hard lesson. Because you think, yeah, it's all, that's all very touchy-feely, and I get it, but I want to be successful, so I know I have to be funny. Yeah, it's good to be funny, but generally, funny comes from honesty and being connected and the relationship, rather than look how clever I can be with or without my partner. I think with so many creative people, there is a temptation to rely on the things that they know. You know, like bag of tricks. I, yeah, bag of tricks. So how do you how do you keep yourself out of your bag of tricks? I never really cataloged a bag of tricks as far as I can remember. I do know people who have large bags of tricks and they rely on them and they're very good tricks. But it never really interested me to just repeat, repeat, repeat. I have bad habits I might fall into or or uh, relationships cues that I will revisit but not generally in a way that is like i can always do you know 3a uh so i feel i feel like um bag of tricks just is a cul-de-sac um and some people rely on it and some people are really good with their tricks so i'm not going to knock it i'm just going to say i don't enjoy it doing it myself is there something that you would like to play you know something you haven't done yet uh yeah I am a character in the Deadpool comics. Yes. And it, that has transferred now to the Guardians of the Galaxy comic. Mm -hmm. So Marvel Comics uh, have these two guys who created the, the newest version of Deadpool, uh, Brian Posehn and, and Jerry Duggan. And they wrote a character who was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who uh, it was just a supporting character in the first Deadpool comic they wrote. And he stuck around, and the artist drew me. He just chose me because he thought it suited the character, my look. So he just straight up drew me as the character, and I got a call from Jerry, who I know, and he said, hey, listen, our, our artist drew you. Would you sign a release? 
and just let us, because we don't want to re redraw all this. So I said, sure. And the character stuck around, and eventually they were calling it Agent Adsit, which is my last name. And then eventually, a few issues later, they were calling it Agent Scott Adsit. And then he became a major supporting character in Deadpool. And uh, he was just always around. He's kind of a put-upon bit of a loser, but he's good at his job and he can kick ass sometimes. And then when Jerry was writing the comic by himself, uh, Marvel had this big culling of characters. They were killing a bunch of characters off. And he knew that they would come gunning, editorial would come gunning for Agent Atsit. So he threw me up into space. And now I am a commander in the Nova Corps, uh, which has been, a, has been in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, Glenn Close was the person who kind of ran the uh, Nova Corps in Guardians. And so I'm a commander in that fleet of space agents. So I would love to play that in the movies. That would be fun just <laughs> to play myself in the Marvel Universe because I do exist. If there's a multiverse, I do exist in the Marvel Universe officially. <laughs> well, Scott Adsit, it's a pleasure having you here Thank on you. Earth with us today. I've had a great time. Thank you. Comedian and actor Scott Adsit. You may have seen him in a number of TV shows like 30 Rock, and you may have heard him as the voice of Baymax on Big Hero 6. Well, this weekend, you can see him on stage at Dad's Garage on Friday and Saturday night. What time? 8 o'clock and 10.30. Thanks so much for Thanks. taking the time. Oh, this is lovely. And we're going to leave you with the theme from 30 Rock, scored by Jeff Richmond, and that is our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer, with help from Bram Sable-Smith. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Have a great weekend, everybody. This is On Second Thought. Mm -hmm.